thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021-446-0567-011-830702. Let's take a break from the madness and deal with other matters as well. Get better educated about the world in which we live, uh, the, uh, the workings of the human body, nature, all of that. So give us a call. Anything that you've ever wanted to ask uh, on these subjects on 021-446-0567-011-830702. Chris, good morning. Lovely to chat to you. Yeah, as usual. Hi, Reedy. Good Hi to there. talk to you too. I was chatting yesterday to a Wits University uh, student and they have started a rural healthcare program where they're targeting people in rural areas who otherwise don't have access to healthcare. And one of the successful initiatives that they've conducted in the last couple of months were a number of uh, successful cataract uh, operations. And I see that our first story today uh, deals with uh, uh, cataracts. Tell us about that. Yeah, you're, you're right to highlight cataracts. It's the leading cause of blindness around the world. 50% of cases of blindness are caused by cataracts. And right on cue, researchers in America say that they may have stumbled upon an eyedrop-based treatment and preventative measure that could either stop and even reverse cataracts. You wouldn't need surgery. First of all, what actually is a cataract? Well, as we mm. age, the lens in the front of the eye becomes foggier. And this is because it contains proteins called crystallins, which are long, straight, rigid proteins which we're born with and we have to make last a lifetime. As they age and as they're exposed to things like ultraviolet radiation and other sorts of oxidative stresses in the body, these proteins can warp and bend and eventually they become misfolded and they don't line up nice and straight anymore and effectively they form clumps. And this has an effect of distorting or scattering the light that goes through the front of the eye and this is what causes the blurred vision and ultimately um, a complete loss of vision. And a group of researchers at the University of California, San Diego, this is a lady called Ling Zhao and her colleagues, they have published this in the journal Nature this week. They were looking at cases of congenital cataracts because in some instances children are born with or very soon after birth develop very dense cataracts. And so she was comparing the genetic material of these children with their parents in order to try to see what genes might be causing these children to be born with this condition. And they found a change in a gene which is called lanosterol synthase. And this makes a chemical called lanosterol, which is part of the pathway that ultimately makes cholesterol in our bodies. So they reasoned, well, if these people who get cataracts don't have enough lanosterol, Mm -hmm. if we put extra lanosterol in, will this stop or perhaps even reverse the clumping of these crystallines in the lens and, and maybe stop cataracts? So they did some simple experiments initially in cells, then they did it with the 
ra rabbits that had uh, cataracts and then ultimately dogs that had cataracts. And just by exposing the lens tissue in, in eye drop form for a matter of days only, they could significantly reduce the degree of fogging in the lens by administering this very simple substance. So they're saying very big opportunity here potentially to intervene in the world's leading cause of blindness. One in five people over the age of 40 is developing cataracts and because of the ageing population, as, as we become more technologically advanced, more people are living longer, more people are going to get cataracts yes. and, and therefore we're going to see potentially the demand for cataract surgery doubling in the next 20 years, which we just can't keep up with anywhere in the world. Therefore, if we have something like this, you can slow down the progression or even reverse the development of cataracts and actually make cataracts take longer to form than a person's going to live for naturally. So if we could actually make one of the world's commonest visual problems a thing of the past in a very cheap and simple way. Mm -hmm. And then I've got a tweet here from somebody um, at Tian wants to know, is it true that intelligent people are more prone to depression? Well, it's certainly true that people at either end of the social spectrum which means people at the very top of the social class, social pecking order, and people at the very bottom of the pecking order are the most prone to depression. Why do I bring social class into it? Because the way in which social class is usually defined is by job occupation and income and people who are most intelligent tend to be the people who are doing the most demanding jobs and people who probably are at least well performing tend to be doing the least demanding jobs so at either end of that social spectrum at either end of the earning spectrum and therefore either end of the intelligence spectrum you do see an extreme of mental illnesses and it's and it's well known that people who are very creative people who are very very successful because they can think outside the box they do appear to be more prone to mental illness so yes uh, there there is certainly an association it also can run in families but then so can intelligence you do see a, mm. um, an inherited trait towards depression and other certain mental illnesses including schizophrenia and manic depression well, I anticipate a, a, a question, Chris, because every week I get a question. How does the naked scientist know, know so much? Oh, my goodness. Does he read a lot? Is he always studying? So don't blame me if somebody asks, so are you one of those people who are on the other side of uh, of depression, given uh, the, the intelligence and the ability to answer all our Do questions know, I'm, almost I'm all lucky. the time? I'll say this really right. Mm. I'm so, I, I, th I think I view myself as extremely lucky because, yes, I'm, I'm uh, an extremely kind of volatile person. I get very excited about things but i do not ever get depressed uh, i've come through some some intense adversities in my life and i've never got depressed mm. um yes you have down days everyone has down days yeah. and you always go through through a few days and think oh, i feel a bit miserable today but uh, clinical depression where you have this terrible mm. sapping of your energy you just can't motivate yourself and and your perspective completely goes i've never been in that situation mm. and i judge myself to be extremely fortunate because yeah. for people who are in that position it's a horrible thing i'm sure it is thank you chris let's go to david in cyril dean good morning good morning to you mm. uh, in the past we've had limitations like the sound barrier now i would like to know why uh, light has a determined speed. I mean, it's, it's running in a vacuum. Why shouldn't it be instantaneous? And is there a possibility of it, us ever exceeding the speed of light to discover new planets uh, in the universe? 
Okay, David. Hi, David. Well, we don't need to exceed the speed of light to discover new planets in the universe. We're already doing yes. that. And in fact, we've discovered thousands, potentially, of new planets, and we've imaged more than a thousand of them. Uh, NASA's Kepler Space Telescope is busy doing that, and just in the last day, it's discovered 452b, which is Kepler 452b, which is about a thousand light years away or so. And this is the most Earth-like planet yet discovered. It's about one and a half times bigger than the Earth, but it orbits a star very similar to our own sun and seems to have conditions about the same as what we've got here. So people are saying, wow, we found Earth version 2.0. That's how they're dubbing it. So we don't need to break the light speed barrier in order to see new planets because the light from these planets and stars does come towards us at the speed of light and if we're able to detect it we can see these things we regard light as having uh, a finite speed limit it's um 300,000 kilometers every second or 300 million meters a second and we don't think anything can go faster than that the reason it has a finite speed well the the reason for this is that light is a propagating electromagnetic wave you have a changing electrical field and when you change an electrical field as Michael Faraday showed us you get a changing magnetic field and if you have a changing magnetic field you get a changing electric field again so this whole process propagates at the speed of light through space and it doesn't need a medium to propagate through and so light travels at and propagates at this defined speed limit why it should have that speed limit I don't think anyone actually knows that was David, wasn't it? Thank you very much. Thomas, what are you saying? Oh, okay. I was about to come to you, Azania, but not yet because Thomas has given me an instruction. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Azania in Houghton. Good morning. Good morning, Rady. Good morning, Doctor. I have a question. A couple of weeks ago, a local newspaper reported that a lizard living woman stomach for a couple of years. So I wonder, wondering how is that possible? So it reported that the lizard did what? The lizard can live in a human stomach. Yeah, for, for a couple of years. That's Why would it, how would it get there in the first place? But anyway, okay. Exactly. <laughs> no, I'm asking you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm very sceptical of that one, yeah. I must say. A lizard is a reptile. Reptiles have lungs. They need to breathe air. And they're also adapted to living on things like insects, not stomach acid. I think maybe the newspaper was getting confused with the film Alien because <laughs> there, there's no way that a lizard would live inside a human stomach for uh, two years. Things do live inside human stomachs. There are bacteria that are specially adapted to live there. Helicobacter pylori is one of the commonest human infections all around the world. Half the population of the world probably carry this microorganism in their stomach. And, and these corkscrew-shaped tiny bugs are very good at uh, surviving despite the presence of stomach acid, but not much else can. There are obviously some parasites that are quite good at slipping past stomach acid and then getting into the intestine where they want to go. But I'm not aware of any worms and, and, and sorry, any reptiles that are adapted to live in the human stomach. Thank goodness for that, hey? Let's go to Peter in Observatory. Good morning. Peter in Observatory, good morning. Okay, Peter is not ready. Let's go to Fanny in Centurion. Good morning. Hi, ready. It's, uh, good morning, Chris. Um, I'm interested to know if you use mnemonic techniques in any of your thought processes, and if so, what can you advise youngsters? Um, I don't use it anymore, but I used to. Tell us what you used to do then. I, I used to use mnemonic techniques. Do you use any of those techniques or are you just fortunate? 
Well, I'm asking you what sorts of techniques. To, to, can you describe what you mean by by? Oh, oh, by oh what technique? I um, it's uh, Tony Buzen used to uh, publish books. I don't know if he still does, but it's like one bun, two shoe, three tree, four door, and so on forth. Well, in medical school, because you have to learn loads of anatomy, there are lots of, of rhymes, and most of them are naughty, um, and, 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 they, and they make you laugh, but they make you remember things. And so occasionally, for very, very complicated things like that, a naughty rhyme is, is help, it helps to make things memorable, and so I will admit to uh, resorting to some of those things. But on mm. the whole, no, um, I, I, I don't tend to use those sorts of tricks. I just tend to remember things. I don't know how, but... Um, yeah, I, I just uh, read stuff, and then I, I think I think about stuff. When I'm doing boring, repetitive tasks, like walking to work or digging the garden or mowing grass and things, uh, when you don't actually have to think about what you're doing, you can think about other stuff, and sometimes I sort of turn things over in my mind, and I think in the course of doing that, you're helping to refresh things and, and think about how to, to put them in a different context or to, to make associations, one thing linked to another, and, and that helps you to remember things. Hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Fanny. It's, it's a very strange thing, memory, isn't it? Because, Chris, I could forget something that someone told me five or ten minutes ago. But if you ask me what happened 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I'll remember what I even remember what you were wearing when I first saw you. I remember I remember those kind of things. I remember that well, there were naked, keys. <laughs> I'll remember that there were even keys on a table and a mug and the date and the weather. I'll remember that kind of detail and I don't know why. It just happens. <laughs> let's go to... Uh, let's well, try. We, yeah, yep. well, that's true. It's true. Now, yeah. we, we make different sorts of memories as we get older, I think. I think the memories you make when you're little, because often first impressions count. Mm. You tend to make very vivid, very powerful memories of early experiences. And as we get older, we become far more cynical and jaded and experiences become much less novel to us and therefore I think they make a smaller impression on us and therefore I think we probably make a, a, a weaker imprint or an engram of that particular experience in our minds and so that's why our past experiences I think t uh, and very emotional situations tend to be far more vivid in our memories than day-to-day -day things. Mm. Let's go to Peter, let's try you again. We tried earlier, we couldn't hear you. Peter, an observatory. Yeah, hi. Yes. Um, I, I grow plants uh, hydroponically and in the good old days, the, the lights uh, that I used to buy were all measured in watts, which was really easy. 600 watts is, um, you know, less intense than 800 watts. Then for a time, they were measured in candle power, which I, I battled to get my mind around. They went on to lumens, which eventually I understood. Um, but now I'm getting people telling me the latest range measure the light intensity in photons. And I'm, a, I'm confused again. Uh, which, uh, is there any way to correlate candle power, lumens, photons? Uh, what I understand is just the energy input, not the output, but uh, the other three seem to be the output. Yeah, it's very confusing, isn't it? And the reason this really happens is that the thing we worry about when we plug a le an, an electric bulb in is, well, what is this going to do to my electricity bill? Mm -hmm. And if you plug a bulb in and it's a, an old-fashioned filament lamp, then although it may say this is a 60-watt light bulb, in fact, about 90% of the energy that thing's using you, is light you can't see because it's infrared, it's heat. So the amount of useful light coming out is tiny. It's burning a huge amount of electricity off, but it's not terribly useful. 
Whereas, if you invest in these newfangled LED lamps, which are absolutely tremendous, I have to say, the technology has come on leaps and bounds, then they're actually much more efficient than the filament lamps, and they turn a much greater proportion of the electricity you put into them into useful light rather than invisible light and heat that you can't see and can't use. Um, both could be rated at the same wattage, but you would get, therefore, far more useful light out of an LED lamp than a filament lamp. How do we standardise or rationalise that? Well, well, actually, you could express the uh, functional performance of the lamp in terms of its candle power or how many photons and lumens come out because at the same time, at the end of the day, that's the visible light. Um, if you were to express it in photons, you can have photons of infrared, so it could still be a bit misleading. But um, if you were to confine that to uh, visible light, then that's probably the best measure if you want to actually say, well, how well a lamp will illuminate a room because now we're in this bizarre situation where you've got lights boxes with with lamps in them and it says you know this is a 25 watt bulb um equivalent to the sort of filament equivalent of like 100 watts or something uh so now we're, we're making it even more complicated so i think they will have to, to slowly standardize this in some way but how they're going to do that i don't know all right peter thank you very much and uh we have emil emil in kempton park good morning morning to you morning yes. chris chris do you ride motorbike um Actually, when I was little, my, my parents yeah. used to do funny things for me when I was small, and uh, one of my Christmas presents was a, was a knackered old motorbike, which I then rebuilt and had great fun um, rebuilding this thing. And we, used to, we didn't used to drive it on the road, but we used to, we used to have races around the garden because um, I had, okay. an old, had an old Mini and a motorbike and, and, and a go-kart we built as well. So we had a lot of fun, um, but uh, mm. I, I, do, I do occasionally still use it, but um, not on the road. Okay. Because I'll tell you what happens is that you can picture yourself sitting on the motorbike, you engage going, you go forward very slowly. If you had to push your right handlebar away from you, which direction would the bike go? Well, it's all about lean, isn't it? Because um, actually when you go around the corner, um, you lean the bike over and actually steer out of the curve. So it's, it's the opposite way. But the, the fork on a bike, it doesn't have to be a motorbike, it can be a push bike actually. The breakthrough yeah. in how a bike works is that the... the fork is such that the bike actually steers into the direction it is trying to fall and okay, in other words it's always gonna, doing the, the bike making. equivalent of you putting your hand under a under a broomstick it's the same thing yes, if you hold a broom vertically out of your hand uh, the broom will try and fall and you move your hand to hold the broom vertical you're doing with your yes. hand essentially what your bicycle frame is doing with your bike okay. yes all right so what i'm saying mm -hmm. is at, at 10 kilometers an hour if you push your the the handlebar, the right handlebar away from you, you would tend to go in a left direction. If you're doing 20 kilometers an hour and you push your right handlebar away from you, you would still tend to go in a left direction. What I discovered is between, between 30 and 40, something changes. And when you push your right handlebar away at 50, 60, 70, 80, you turn right, not left. And I want to know why, when you're going at speed, something changed. Something changed. It doesn't. It doesn't go left anymore when you're pushing the right handlebar away. It turns right when you push the right handlebar away. Yeah, but also you're probably not holding the bike straight up in the air either, are you? You're probably leaning over as well, and, and that does road. make quite open a difference. Straight, 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 open road. Between thirty and forty, mm. something changes, and you and the direction of the of the bike changes.
And well, I haven't experienced that. I've, I've, at those sorts of speeds and just and just mm-hmm. staying straight upright, um, I've always found that it does actually steer the direction you point the wheel. But um, if anyone else has this experience, do phone in and tell us, and perhaps you can share your wisdom. Yeah, and uh, help us figure this one out. Thank you, Emil. Vusi in Sant, in your question. Hi, morning, Lily. Morning, uh, Chris. Uh, I just want to find out something here. Is it uh, true that... Uh, Men who are losing hair, you know, who are balding, they are prone to, to prostate cancer. Right, okay, I know what you're getting at. The reason that you have um, bald, well, people go bald is because there is a condition called androgenic alopecia. And mm-hmm. to put it simply, uh, people who have androgens, testosterone, and who also have a particular gene combination mean that testosterone in the scalp poisons your hair follicles in a certain distribution and makes hair fall out. Now, because men have a higher rate of uh, a level of testosterone than women do, uh, men are therefore more likely to have this happen to them at a younger age than women do. The other organ in your body which is sensitive to hormone, to the hormone testosterone, is your prostate. And if you have a steady supply of testosterone to your prostate, you make the prostate grow more and get bigger, which it does over life. And if, and, and therefore, if you are one of those unlucky people who develops prostate cancer, you can develop prostate cancer that responds to testosterone. And one of the treatments for prostate cancer is actually to block the supply of testosterone. And there are drugs that can do this, and this can make tumours shrink. If you don't have any testosterone, you therefore won't have a high, as high a risk of having prostate cancer. And at the same time, you will keep your hair. So you could say there is an association between having testosterone, having hair loss and having prostate cancer, but ha- being bald does not cause prostate cancer. It's mm. merely a, an, a what we call epiphenomenon. It's a side symptom reflecting the fact that men have testosterone and testosterone is linked to the growth of the prostate and the growth of some prostate tumours. All right, time flies when you are having fun. We'll chat again next week, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Rudy. Great Bye-bye. questions as always. As See you always, soon. yes. And of course, we are going to podcast uh, this feature for you. It's very, very popular. I sometimes wake up uh, to questions, emails, and uh, tweets at 2 a.m. in the morning asking me, where is the podcast? It's always there, always. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.